you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Thank you. Um, we're going to hear from Murray in just a moment, but if Thank you everybody. would now um, open your Bibles, it will be on the screen, or phones, and it's going to be Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Human beings are remarkable communicators. We are compulsive communicators. My youngest granddaughter is one year old, uh, and she does not yet talk. But that doesn't mean she doesn't communicate. Uh, you know how it is with little kids. Um, smiles, laughs, giggles, whinging, crying, moaning, groaning, uh, chatter. They're little chatter that sounds like they're having a real conversation, but it's a load of gobbledygook. Uh, little kids are trying already to be communicators. And then one day she'll speak her first words. And that's remarkable when you think about it, isn't it? Uh, remarkable because no one will have sat her down with a textbook and say, come on, girlie, got to learn your grammar. You're going to be talking soon. Uh, 
vocab lists this week. Next week you might be talking. No, no one does that with a little kid. She will just pick it all up and eventually she'll start to say a few words and string them together and speak with the accent of her parents. It's brilliant. And then she'll step into a world saturated with communication. Texts, emails, TV, movies, conversations, debates, arguments, shows, music. Our world just has endless, endless messages of communication. Important ones, trivial ones, controversial ones, beautiful ones. How come we are so communicative? Even non-communicative people are communicative. Like the silent treatment is powerful communication. I think the Bible gives us a reason for why we are so compulsively communicative, and it's because we are made in the image of the ultimate communicator. We're made in the image of God, and right from the very beginning of the Bible story, God communicates. He's a God who speaks. I think it's the third word of the third verse of the Bible. And God said, and God's words are powerful. God's words do, they enact what he says. So God says, let there be light, and there is light. With God's word, he blesses. With God's word, he curses. God's word are life-giving, life-shaping, life-changing. And his words call for response. They demand that we say something back. And actually what you say back to the words of God shapes your relationship with God. You might speak back words of love or words of doubt, words of fear, words of worship and adoration. I want you to think and kind of have stacked in the back of your brain as we get into Psalm 19. I want you to have two questions ticking away there. Do you hear God speak? Is God speaking to you? And what are you saying back to God? I want us to think about those things as we look at the psalm. Because Psalm 19 is, is a, a song, the psalms are songs, it's a song about God's communication and our response. And it begins with the voice of creation. Then it moves to the voice of Scripture, and then it moves to the voice of our response. So let's get into it. First of all, the first part of the psalm, the voice of creation. As uh, David strums the first chord on his lyre, uh, we've got to be kind of imagining that we're with him out somewhere in the Middle East, maybe out in a, a desert in the first century and, and at nighttime, you look up into the sky and it's just 
crowded with stars and planets and the moon. No city lights nearby to mask it. It's just, just this dazzling sky. Hundreds of billions of stars. It's beautiful and it's beyond searching out. And then come the cool, crisp, clear morning. The, the sun starts to rise. And it makes, David says in the psalm, it makes this majestic march across the sky from east to west. It's, it's like, he says, it's like a bridegroom going out on his wedding day. And no one can stop him. I actually had a, son, a, a, um, a new son-in-law last Saturday. Daughter got married. There was no stopping that, that groom. Like, come that day. He's going to be there. He's not going to get distracted. And, and uh, David said, the sun is like that. Like it, it just sweeps across the sky, and you can't stop it. It's going to go all the way. And as it goes, as it rises, it gets hotter and hotter. It bears down on you. It, it warms you. It seeks you out. You can't hide out in the desert from the light of the sun. And all this, this picture of creation, David says, is a declaration. It's all powerful communication from God, the God who made the heavens and the earth. So have a look, look at the words that it uses here in these opening verses of Psalm 19. The heavens declare, the sky proclaims. Their speech, it says, is, is everywhere. Their, their speech goes out into all languages and all nations and to the ends of the earth. Verse 4 says their, their voice is universal. Uh, verse 4 also says their words go to the ends of the world. This is potent nonverbal communication. And it's like an endless sermon that God is preaching. What's being preached in this sermon? It's back there in verse 1, isn't it? The glory of God. All this creation is a, is a magnificent, magnificent display of the majesty and the glory of God. In creation, God is making a statement about himself. The, the vastness of the ocean is a statement about God. The power of a tornado is a statement about God. The gentleness of a dewdrop is a statement about God. And we're meant to look at all that and realize that this stunning creation cannot be a mere accident. It can't just be the very, very lucky fallout of a lot of random processes. If you're poking around in your back shed and cleaning out all the junk and mess and clutter, and as you do it, you stumble across this painting. You didn't know it was there. You'd never seen it before. It's you dust it off, and it's really quite beautiful. But it's, it's, it's had spiders and insects all over it. 
you don't thank the spiders and insects for producing this beautiful work of art. That'd be insane. You know that spiders and insects don't do that. You know that someone's painted this. If it happens to be a great work of art, you know that it's the, the work of a great artist. And you might even want to find out about who it was and how great he or she was. And when we look at creation, when we look at a sunset, when you look at a flower, when you look at an insect, when you look at a mountain, when you look at trees and autumn leaves, even when you have a cold, wet, damp, Geelong morning, when you see creation, we are meant to see God making a statement about himself. Theologians call this general revelation. God revealing himself generally to everyone. The Apostle Paul, when he talks about this idea in Romans chapter 1, says that this leaves everyone without excuse. Everybody has heard this sermon proclaimed by creation. Everyone should know there has to be a God. He has to be majestic. He has to be powerful. He has to be beautiful because look at the world that we are in. This is the way Paul puts it. What can be known about God is plain to them, to people everywhere, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Rather than suppress the truth, we're meant to listen to what God is saying. Listen to the sermon God is preaching every day. And that's actually a lovely summons because it's a really nice sermon to listen to. Not all sermons are, I know that. But this is a beautiful sermon to listen to. Enjoy a sunset. Enjoy the beach. Enjoy trees and forests and mountains and lakes and the night sky. And as you enjoy the, the beauty of the created world, lift your eyes and listen to the God who's speaking. Listen to what he's saying about himself in that. Think, think about what he's proclaiming and declaring of his own glory, his love and his power and his beauty and his perfection and his intricacy. Creation's making this magnificent statement about who God is. Are you listening to the voice of creation? In your busy, bustling life, will you slow down enough to hear what God is saying? You know, I think we will only listen to the voice of creation. We'll only get the message that God's preaching in creation if we make the transition that the psalm now makes. After six verses about creation, we get five verses about Scripture. So we move from the voice of creation 
to the voice of Scripture. Now, how does, how does David in the psalm make that move? He does it off the back of verse 6. That's where he's been talking about the sun, making its majestic course across the heavens. And, and listen to what verse 6 says. Uh, there's nothing hidden from its heat. Wherever you are, the sun searches you out, exposes you, warms you. And now it's as if David thinks, and there's something else that does that. There's something else that you cannot hide from. Something else that searches you out and exposes you and, and warms you and sheds light on everything. And that something else is the Bible, the Word of God. In theological language, we move from general revelation to special revelation, the way God has specially revealed himself to us in Scripture. The written word is essential because while the voice of creation is powerful, there's some things it cannot do. The voice of creation can't change your heart. And it can't show you the saving grace and love of Jesus. To know that, we have to crack open God's written word. In, in fact, Without the written word, we'll never really clearly hear the message being preached in creation. John Calvin, great Reformation theologian, said that Scripture is like a, a pair of spectacles. And he says we're like um, bleary, weak-eyed old men, which kind of sounds like a description of myself. And uh, he said that they, they can't see what creation is showing us unless you put on the spectacles of Scripture. And then with the, the spectacles of Scripture, you start to see what creation is actually saying. To change the imagery, uh, the, the Bible is like hearing aids enabling us to now hear the voice of creation until we have the special revelation of God. We, we pick up all the wrong messages from creation. It's as though in creation, God comes a whole lot closer to us. And actually, the language of the psalm reflects that. In the, in the first six verses there, God is spoken of as God, the, the God of heaven and earth, the God of everyone and everything. But in verses 7 to 11, it changes the, the name used for God, and it now calls him Lord, Yahweh, the personal covenant God. And this God now comes to us and speaks to us. Now... I'm really sorry about this, but you're going to have to put up with, with a bit of grammar. There's a little grammar lesson, okay. Uh, I don't know if you remember this stuff. don't know whether they taught it in school. I don't think they do anymore. Nouns, verbs, adjectives. There's a bunch of nouns, verbs, and adjectives in these next few verses, and they're actually magnificent. First of all, the nouns. Do you remember? Nouns name things. And there are a bunch of names for God's word. Have a look at them in verses 7 and following. The law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord. The 
precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. They're all parallel phrases, different names, ultimately for what, what David would have thought of as Torah, the law of God, which is not just a bunch of commands and rules. It's actually a story. It's the story of God creating this world and making a people for himself and saving them and then teaching them how to respond. Now, that sounds boring, doesn't it? Rules, laws, precepts, commands, but, but David doesn't think of it as boring at all. And we've got to bear in mind when he's talking about this, he's not just talking about the Old Testament first five books of the Bible, the Torah. He's really talking about the whole of Scripture. For us, the whole Bible is the story of what God has done and how He saved us and how we're to respond to Him. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness, Paul says. So what's it like? What's, what's the Bible like? Well, have a look at the adjectives. They describe things. Remember that? The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. Aren't they beautiful words? That's what God's word is like. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. In a world of fake news, in a world of conflicting messages, in a world where every day we read of abuse and violence and oppression, God speaks differently. His words are pure, clean, true. And because they are like that, they do good things. There's, there's the last bit of our grammar lesson, the verbs, the doing words. What, what does it do? It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. In, in a way, the, the first verb there speaks for all of that. And I just want to dwell on that one for a moment or two. The law of the Lord, the, the Bible, God's words in Scripture revives the soul. What's your soul? It's your inner being. It's that... It's your psyche, actually. It's the deepest, most inward part of who you are. And David is saying, God's word revives. It refreshes my inward being, my deepest sense of identity and who I am. It revives it, it animates it, it gives it life. Our culture is constantly talking to us about this, about our soul, our psyche, our inner being, our identity, and its messages, you've got to be true to yourself. Be real to who you really are. 
But who is the real me? If, if the real me is what I feel, <laughs> then the real me is all over the place. I go up and down like a yo-yo. Sometimes the real me feels magnificent, and sometimes it's just the pits. If the real you is your feelings and passions, chances are the real you is all over the shop. And, and if the real me, the true me that I've got to be true to deep down inside is what I desire, then sometimes I'm noble and sometimes I'm a savage. Like, uh, if, if the true me is, is my desires, then the true me is sometimes pretty darn selfish and greedy and envious and vengeful. I... I don't know that I want to be true to the inner me. Our, our culture is very strong in telling us that the, the real you, deep down inside, is, is your sexuality and your gender. But if that message is true, then what it's, what it's saying is one part of who I am defines the whole of me. And sex, sexuality is, is a, a wonderful gift of God. It's a beautiful thing. But it's not the whole thing. And to say that it's the whole thing doesn't free you and revive your soul. It, it limits your soul. And so the Bible offers a different story for our lives. Not the story of being true to ourselves, but a story now of our souls, our identity, our inner being being caught up in something beyond ourselves. God's story, the God who created everything, now coming in love and in grace. God saving us. God having a plan to restore and renew the world. God catching us up into that and giving us an identity that transcends my feelings and my motivations and how good or bad my day is and, and what my sexual inclinations are, caught up to something bigger than me. And David says, and that revives my soul. That refreshes, that restores, because it's taken me out of myself and put me into the glorious and the big and the wonderful thing that God is doing. Well, when you, when you start to see the Bible like that, it's magnificent. The Bible is, um, is not a boring book. David describes it here as sweeter than honey and as more precious than gold. And he chooses those two because honey was the sweetest food around, no, no refined sugar. Uh, and, and gold was the most precious metal. He's saying it is absolutely the best. If you're not into sweet food and you don't like the idea of the Bible's better than the sugar, uh, if, if you're into savoury stuff, I, the Bible's better than the best lasagna you have ever had. It's better than the best pizza. It beats the best burger in town. That's what he's saying. If you're not into gold... The Bible's better than that car you have your heart set on. The Bible's better than the coolest home renovation you could possibly pull off. The Bible's 
better than your brand new 300-inch TV. (laughs) The Bible's better. And he says in, in the last couple of verses of that middle section, buy them as your servant warned and keeping it there's great reward. And isn't, isn't that what we need in life? Warning and reward. Warning to, to steer us away from the stuff that will cause trouble in our lives and reward as we come to know the goodness and the love and the grace of Jesus. I wonder how you handle the Bible, handle Scripture. I wonder how you listen to it. These verses are telling us how. It's not, it's not just information, though there's a bucket of information in the Bible. It's not just a fascinating ancient document to be analyzed. It is an ancient document, and it's worth analyzing, but it's not just that. It's not, it's not a dictionary to look up certain help topics. It's got a bunch of topics in it, but that's not fundamentally what it is. It's not a rule book even though it's got lots of rules. Rather, we should approach the Bible as God speaking to us and God speaking the most precious, life-giving words we can ever hear. Approach it with a hungry soul. Approach it with open ears. Approach it with a heart that wants God to speak into your life. And ask God to put on the spectacles of Scripture so that you can see the rest of the world clearly. Bible's like a precious baby. If you have, some of you have got babies, they're so precious. Eh? You, you, you'll do almost anything to protect your baby. And you will put yourself to ridiculous inconvenience for the sake of that little critter. The Bible's more precious than the most precious baby, and I tell you what, it's better because it's clean and pure. (laughs) And there's no baby like that. So, the psalm has opened our ears to the voice of creation, shown us the beauty of the voice of Scripture, and that leads to the voice of response. Six verses on the voice of creation, uh, five verses on the voice of Scripture, four verses on the voice of response. And the, the transition to this third section of the psalm, I think is actually essentially the same as the transition from the first to the second section. Do you remember the transition? It, it was speaking of the sun, and it says, nothing is hidden from its heat. Searches out, exposes everywhere. And now, I think David's making the same transition because the Word of God is like that. It searches out, it seeks you out, it exposes, it enlightens, it warms. And so now, David thinks about his own life. The law of the Lord exposes him and reveals his heart. David knows, you see there in verse 12, that we have hidden faults, secret sins, stuff we're not even aware of. The people you live with are aware of it, but you're not. I know this lovely old lady, she's very sweet, 
and she talks 19 to the dozen. She's just a compulsive talker. Very sweet, but you can't get a word in edgewise. But I also know that one thing really frustrates her. People who just talk compulsively. <laughs> and you can't get a word in edgewise. She, she'll talk forever about that. <laughs> Isn't that what we're like? We, we don't see our own foibles, let alone our own sins. The stuff in our hearts and in our lives, we're not even aware that we're struggling with it. Sometimes we don't see sin in our lives, not because it's so small, but because it's so familiar. And just because you have a clear conscience doesn't mean you're in the clear. Our consciences are defiled as well. And so we must ask, as David does here, we must ask God to search our hearts, to turn the light of his word on and shine it into our hearts and start to show us our hidden faults. And the law, the Torah that David has been dwelling on, talks about that. In Numbers chapter 15, it gives guidelines for what to do about unintentional sin offerings and sacrifices so that you can secure forgiveness for unintentional sin. But in that same chapter, Numbers 15, it also talks about another kind of sin, which is called high-handed sin or presumptuous sin. It's intentional sin. There's the stuff we're not even aware of and we didn't mean to, but then there's stuff we know exactly what we're doing. And you know what? In the Old Testament law, there is no forgiveness for high-handed sin. It says in Numbers 15, if that's you, you must be cut off from God's people. Little wonder David prays here, oh God, keep me back from that. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. But I know that I don't only have a bunch of hidden sins, half of which I'm not even aware of. But I have also frequently done the wrong stuff quite knowingly. Sometimes I'm a deliberate sinner. Now, I might be on my own there. <laughs> now, nah, there's another one. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm on my own. And these sins, the hidden ones and the deliberate ones, cry out for the mercy of God. David says, declare me innocent. Keep me back. Make me blameless. How, how could those prayers ever be answered? Well, the voice of Scripture gives us the answer. The voice of Scripture tells us those prayers can be answered through the work of Jesus. The one who never sinned unintentionally, let alone high-handedly. Jesus who walked in innocence all his days. Jesus who perfectly kept the law of God. 
Jesus, the one whose soul was revived by the words of his Father, whose eyes were enlightened, whose heart rejoiced in the will of his Father, no matter what it was. Jesus, get this, the Word made flesh. The God who has spoken in Scripture uh, put that Word into a body, into a human. A human who, just like his Word, was perfect and sure and clean and true and right. And then in his stunning grace, Jesus picks up all the baggage and filth and muck of our hidden sins and our deliberate sins. And he goes to the cross, and there the innocent one, the Word made flesh, dies in his flesh and gives up his spirit to deal with all our unintentional and all our deliberate sin. And so it's actually through Jesus that you come to declare God's glory. The heavens declare it, but now when we have experienced this astounding grace and love of Jesus, we declare it too. The the goodness and grace of God is written on our hearts And we join all creation in declaring the glory of God, not just the glory of God in what he's made, but what he's remade through redemption. So David finishes, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. He's lifting up the psalm. It's an offering to God, but he's lifting up his life, isn't he? May my life now be an offering, Lord, to you. And look who he's lifting his life up to. Not an angry God, not a distant God, but my Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. They are beautiful ways to think about God, the the rock-solid God we can rest on, the Redeemer of our souls. That's the right voice of response, friends. And just as as the band comes up and as we come to a close, I want to ask you, will you voice these words back to God this morning. God has spoken to you. God has spoken to you in creation. God has spoken to you in his word. And it's time, it sounds bad, doesn't it? It's time to talk back to God. What are you going to say to God? Will you this morning confess hidden sins? Will you perhaps come and and lay before Jesus deliberate sins? Will you offer your life to God saying, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, 
Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God has spoken in creation, in his word. And we now speak back, offering our lives to him and leaning on a rock and a redeemer. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, we do want to offer our lives to you this morning because you are the only rock we can really lean on and you are the redeemer of our souls. Thank you for speaking so beautifully in creation. Thank you for speaking so powerfully in Scripture. And above all, thank you for speaking to us in and through your Son, Jesus. And we come to him as our Savior, our friend, our rock and our redeemer. May he be glorified in our lives, even as you are glorified in the whole of creation. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.